Good morning. Hey, I'm so excited to jump back into the Gospel of Matthew as we look at the forerunner of Jesus, the man named John the Baptist. Uh, in literature, there's an archetype uh, called a herald. Uh, a herald in literature is a figure who uh, arrives at the protagonist or the hero in the movie and lays before them the mission. A literary uh, figure of an archetype is a lot tied to the historical uh, version of what a herald is, who does pretty much the same, but specifically in context of kings and royals, who at this Herald would go before kings into communities that the king is about to go into and would herald the message that the king is coming. And then shortly after that, the king would arrive. And that pronouncement of the king's arrival, uh, to those who heard it, understood what this meant. There's some things that we need to change in our community. There's some things we need to do differently because the king is coming. In the same way, John the Baptist was a herald of Christ, as Christ is about to come on the scene, Scripture promises that one would go before him as a herald to tell people that Jesus is coming. Uh, heralds are very common features even in cinema today. Uh, there is a very popular herald that you may know of as the name RTD2. Beep, boop, 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 beep, beep. He was a herald. He was a herald because he arrives on the scene and he's with Luke Skywalker and then boop, a hologram, a Princess Leia pops up, and she is seeking help, and therefore he is the herald saying, here is the mission. And from that point on, guess what? The movie's off. The mission is at hand, and we're going on a trip to fulfill the mission that is laid out before us. Uh, Hagrid is also a herald. When he goes to Harry, and he looks at him and says, you're a wizard, Harry. He's a herald. What does that do? That gets it going. We now know what's going on. We got a mission to go to. You're, you're a wizard. You got to go to wizarding school. You got to take over all the, the Dark Lord, and you're going to have to save humanity. Uh, the, John the Baptist is more than just a literary figure, but he, because he's in Scripture, the Bible is literary, but it is also factual and true and historical. And that's why we also must understand uh, that John the Baptist is this archetype or fits this archetype very well, but not from, uh, not from just a literary point of view, not just from an entertainment point of view, but from a real historical point in time as he is there to prepare the way for the mission to be accomplished, to see sinners saved, to see a lost world come to know Jesus, the way to God. And so for you and me, this is important when it comes to John the Baptist. We must understand the mission and the message of John the Baptist. If we're going to understand our own mission and our own message as Christians, it's imperative that we understand who John the Baptist is. Because much like J.B., what I call him, John the Baptist, much like J.B., uh, in his day, you and I also have a responsibility a mission and a message to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, calling people to respond to the gospel. You see, although our message might be a little different from John the Baptist because he was preparing the way for Christ, our mission is the same. And our message instead is Jesus has come and he's coming again. 
You see, it's really important that you and I understand who John the Baptist is. And that's why what I want to do a little bit this morning before we get into the preaching, the sermon, I want to teach you a little bit about who John the Baptist is. Because if you learn who John the Baptist is, it's going to change the way that you read Scripture. It's going to change the way that you understand how important this figure was on the landscape of Scripture and God's redemptive plan. Have I built him up enough? Because here's what you need to know. Did you know that John the Baptist, his part in the Gospels, that the sequence of him and his part into the Gospels is shared in all four accounts of the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Do you know how crazy that is? There is only a handful of accounts that are shared by all four Gospel writers. For instance, Jesus feeding the 5,000. That's important, isn't it? That God can provide when it seems like he can't provide. That's pretty important to the grand scheme of redemptive history, isn't it? Oh, what about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem? He has to enter into Jerusalem if he's going to die on the cross, if he's going to pay the penalty for our sin. The entry into Jerusalem is such an important part of the whole gospel narrative, isn't it? What about Passion Week? That last week where Jesus betrayed and arrested and brought before rulers condemned, hung on a cross. Passion, that's pretty important when it comes to the gospel, isn't it? Passion week. With those accounts, is also shared in all four gospels. John the Baptist. What in the world? Why do they see that John the Baptist is so important when it comes to the gospel narrative? Well, that's what we want to learn this morning. And that's what we want to look at the Word of God, we want to apply it to our life, and the first thing we need to do is understand who this man is. So I want to teach you using M, the letter M. First, I want you to understand the promise of a messenger. I want you to write this in your notes, at least as we run through the teaching part of this, so that you guys understand who we're talking about. The Old Testament promises a messenger, M, a messenger. And at least in two places, very clearly, we see God foretelling of a messenger who's going to come before the arrival of the deliverer, the Messiah. Actually, Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, God is going to arrive. And here's what it says. In Isaiah 40, in verse 3, when we talk about a messenger who's coming, Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, he is prophesying in context about then, in that time, the future deportation of the southern kingdom. If you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, here's what you need to know. Uh, during uh, this chapter of Isaiah, the actual historical context was Israel had split into two, na- uh, two different nations. The northern kingdom was being taken over by Assyria at this point in time. But interestingly enough, as that's happening, Isaiah is prophesying about a future event that hasn't happened yet, the deportation and exile of the southern kingdom. And so what Isaiah is prophesying about is he's saying, you think it's bad now that half the nation is gone. You just wait, give it a couple more, give it a couple more decades and both of these nations are going to be gone. There's going to be nothing left here. Desolation is going to be across the entire nation, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom of Israel. But then he says this, but he's announcing a deliverer that God is coming. And this is what he says in those verses three and four or three through five of chapter 40. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah is promising there's coming a time where God is showing up. And there is going to be one who comes before God and it says, make way, he's on his way. And here's, here's what's going to happen. 
Every valley, in verse 4, shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. Isaiah is prophesying God's promise of saying, I'm going to take out every hindrance, every hurdle, everything that can get in the way of the deliverance of people from their sin. God's going to get rid of it, and he's going to make a way, and he's coming. And there's going to be nothing that impedes the arrival of God to save his people. And in verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So there's coming a time where I'm going to show up and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. We're going to see the glory of God. And all the flesh is going to see it. Everyone's going to see it. It's not going to be hidden. People are going to understand it. God's going to be here. And then you see it again in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. You can jot those two references down. Isaiah 43 through 5. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. What I don't want you to miss in Malachi 4, 5, and 6 is these are the last two verses in the Old Testament. Last two. These are the final words spoken of in the Old Testament before we have the New Testament. And listen to this. Behold, in verse 5, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. That's just the way that God made it, wasn't it? They lived in a time where these things weren't happening. But God's going to restore things back to its original purpose. He's going to make a plan. He's going to come. And on that awesome day the Lord comes and he arrives, he will come and put things back the way they should be. It says, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So here in Malachi we have, behold, there's coming a time where Elijah the prophet is coming before the great and awesome day of the Lord. The great and awesome day of the Lord. That's a term used a lot in Scripture, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord can mean particular times in an eschatological future, like the day of the Lord, as you and I, Christians, are looking forward to the day of the Lord when Christ is going to return. Uh, But the day of the Lord is also often used in Scripture as significant time periods when God does something in history. The day of the Lord, when Christ came, the incarnation of what we're talking about here. The day of the Lord, Christ has arrived. The Jews said that in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, the day of the Lord, God had promised that the all of this whole temple and this temple structure would be demolished when that happened. Day of the Lord. God showed up and did something he promised to do. And so what we have here is before Christ comes, I will send you Elijah the prophet. You need to circle Elijah because you're like, Elijah, but Elijah's not John. John's not Elijah. These are two different people. So what are we talking about? Well, that was the promise of a messenger. Let's now go to the messenger and his mission. These are second M's. The messenger and his mission. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, as he is uh, about to be born, this is what was said of him in Luke 1, 13 through 17. Write that down, Luke 1, 13 through 17. And the angel said to John the Baptist's father, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. What a promise. The angel of the Lord come to you as a mom and say, hey, before the Lord, your son will be great. This is something we need to begin lifting. Who is this John? I don't know, but he's pretty important because before the Lord, he's going to be great. And it says he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. 
Verse 15, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And listen to verse 17. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Did you hear that? The promise to John the Baptist's parents was that he would go before the Lord. He would prepare a people for the message that is to come through Christ. John the Baptist is Elijah, the Elijah to come. He goes in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. A few verses later in verses 76 through 80 in the same chapter, it also says this about John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. I mean, that's right out of Isaiah, isn't it? To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. What's the, what's the point here? Forgiveness of sins. You're going to go before the Lord. And you're going to tell people that he's coming and he wants to forgive you of your sins. Why? Verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's the problem with sin, isn't it? We're in darkness. We're in the shadow of death. We're into the consequences of the sin life, not only here temporarily, but in the reality of the darkness in which our souls will go separated from God. And yet here we are. God loves us. His tender mercy. He's come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. In verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel, which is where we'll pick up today. I mean, so from that time of Luke 1, 80... Up until the moment they were about to jump into, John was in the wilderness being prepared in his own life to prepare the way for the Lord. So we have the messenger, we have his mission. What was his message? His message. John 1.29. John 1.29. John the Baptist, it says the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said in the public he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, he was heralding the coming of the Lord. And as he sees Jesus coming, the Holy Spirit in him prompts him to look over to point and say, Behold, Harold, behold, look, here comes the Lamb who takes the sin from the world. And then that paired with his mission, even that we'll read today in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 3, what's the response at that time? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lamb has come to take away the sin of the world. Prepare, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's your message, there's your messenger, there's your mission. Uh, but there needs to be a clarification sometimes. Anybody ever need something clarified? It's explained to you once, but then you're like, right, could, you, could you tell me again? Uh, that happens here in Scripture too. And so you need to write down mission clarified. Uh, these things have all been said, and yet the disciples still kind of uncertain who this John is. Write down Matthew 11, 11 through 15. Jesus says this, starting in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Are you kidding me? Jesus said, of men born of women, there has arisen no one in history greater than John the Baptist. I'm like, David? Solomon? Moses? 
Abraham, we can keep going, can we? Isaac, Jacob, all of them. This one, him, no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus has a, a high view of who this man is. But then listen to the paradox, next sentence. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I love that. He's like, this man, no one, no one greater on earth than him. But I'll tell you who's greater, the least in the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus was here about a message and about a mission. And he says, I tell you what, as great as he is, the person who is in the presence of God, the person who responds to the message of the gospel, even the least of those people are greater than John the Baptist. Come on. The, the mission, the message is so much bigger than the messenger. The mission was way bigger than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist knew that. But this is what Jesus still has to say. Look at verse 13. For all the prophets and law prophesied until John. I love that. Uh, that in, in Scripture is a definite endpoint of what has happened in the Old Testament. All the prophets and law had prophesied until John. John comes as the last great Old Testament prophet, and he's standing there at the threshold of the new covenant that's coming, and he's preparing the way for it in Old Testament prophetic fashion. And what, is, what does Jesus say? He's came, and if you are willing to accept it, in verse 14, he is Elijah who is to come. So the promise that Elijah would come before the great and awesome day of the Lord, Jesus is saying, he is the Elijah to come. And he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Then another opportunity, another time the mission was clarified in Matthew 17, jot down 9 through 13. Matthew 17, 9 through 13. This was after the transfiguration. Christ is up on the mountain, and it is the glory of the Lord is there, and he's with uh, two people, one of them being Elijah. And as they were coming down the mountain, in verse 9, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Jesus, didn't, Jesus wasn't saying, hey, don't tell people about this. This is a secret. He's like, no, wait until the time is fulfilled when I'm glorified, and then go tell people the testimony of what you've seen here. And the disciples asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? That's a good question. Why did he ask that question? They saw Elijah as one of the two people that were there on the mountain, uh, and a question came to their mind. The Bible says that Elijah must come before this great and awesome day when the Lord is revealed. But they're saying, but you're saying you're the Lord. But yet, where is Elijah? If that was Elijah, he's not down here. So they were asking, how are you, you, if Elijah hasn't come yet? It's a question. And so this is what Jesus has to say. Jesus said, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. That's what it says. He has already come, but the people didn't recognize him. But here's what they did do is what it says. They did whatever they pleased. They murdered him. John the Baptist's head was cut off by Herod. He was persecuted. His head was cut off. And it also says, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands, which is inevitably what happens. Same government that took John the Baptist, the same government that took Jesus and crucified him. And in verse 13 it says, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is he who was spoken of in the Old Testament that says, I am coming to prepare the way of the Lord. I am not the Christ, but I've come to prepare the way for Christ. And they clarified that mission. And the last M that you should write down is mission complete. Although we're going to jump into the text in a moment and be right in the middle of the mission, you need to see that the mission was complete and listen to John's response. John 3, 26 through 30. John 3, 26 through 30. 
And it says in verse 26, And then John's disciples came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So John the Baptist had a ministry of baptizing people in preparation for the coming of the Lord. And then his disciples are looking across the river and saying, that Jesus guy you're talking about, he's over there, and he's baptizing more people than you. His church is getting bigger than your church. What are you going to do, John? And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness with me that I said I'm not the Christ. He is. And he says, But I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. I love that. He said, you know, you know what the marriage is about? In our popular culture, it's about the bride. But historically, you need to understand, historically throughout history, the main individual in the marriage was the bridegroom. Because the bridegroom was the one who took the wife, took her into his home, paid the bride price to make sure that the needs were taken care of took the bride, provided for her, nurtured her, cared for her, provided a place for her, provided children for her. There's a big deal in the ancient times. And so in the wedding, the focus was on the the bridegroom. And then John the Baptist is making this point. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, and then the friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. The bride was the church, the people being saved and brought into relationship with Christ. That was the bride. Jesus was the bridegroom. And John the Baptist says, I'm like the best man. He's like, this ain't about me. Can you imagine going to a wedding and the best man making it all about him? And John the Baptist said, no, 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 that's not how this works. My job is to get things ready for him, for him to walk down the aisle, for him to take his bride, and that I would get, get away of anything that would impede that, make sure people understand what exactly is happening here. And John the Baptist says, I'm the best man. I'm just sitting over here clapping because what is happening in front of me. And this is exactly what John the Baptist says there in the rest of verse 29. Because of this, he's greatly rejoicing. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He says, I have come to do what I was called to do in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John the Baptist said, I've I've come to do the mission that God has called me to do. This is about him. This isn't about me. As my mission wanes, his is just getting started. And I am here to get out of the way and let the mission of the gospel go into all the world. What if, what if we had that attitude? Could you imagine a bunch of John the Baptist attitude people at our church? Like, you know, this is about Jesus. This is all about him. I must decrease, he must increase. This is about his mission. My life is about his mission. I used to make my life about me, and now I make it, it's all about him. There were some things I used to like doing that I don't do anymore. Not because I wouldn't like doing them, but because there's something bigger to be doing here. There's a mission to go on. There's a call, there's a message that needs to be proclaimed. But I'm preaching now. I told you I was teaching. I'll get to the preaching now. <laughs> Open with me to Matthew 3. I hope that you understand a little bit of the context of who this man is. Who is John the Baptist? And now as we jump in to Matthew 3, we can do it together, understanding a little bit of who he is and what he was here to do. Matthew 3, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This word preaching there in the Greek is the word caruso. Caruso. It means to proclaim 
or to herald or to announce. It's different than the word we talked about last week, didasco, which means to teach or to instruct. Right? Is there teaching and instruction in the concept of Caruso? Of course there is. But it's a whole nother thing in the sense of I'm here to proclaim and to announce. I'm here to herald a message. For instance, there's a difference when I'm teaching you and when I'm preaching to you, isn't it? That's when people say, amen, preach it, pastor, because there's a difference from somebody teaching you something and someone preaching you and proclaiming to you and heralding something to you. Because when I herald, I am asking for a response. When I'm heralding and proclaiming something, there needs to be something done because of the proclamation that has been made. That is not always the case in teaching, isn't it? Sometimes when when you're taught something, you just leave and do nothing with it. The unfortunate part about why most people come to church thinking they're being taught which is, again, part of the church. But we understand that the preaching is the word caruso, proclaimed. When we come in to hear the word of God, we are leaving with something in our hands to go do. It's the same word, the same concept we have here, caruso. He came preaching to proclaim and to herald an announcement. Specifically in historical context, this word is often tied to royalty, like we talked about before. And so here, when he's saying, I've come to herald the message from the king, The king is coming. You know, very interesting. His message was very simple. A lot like Old Testament prophets, his message was short and sweet. He said, the king is coming. And everyone says, what do we need to do? And John the Baptist says, repent, he's coming. Repent, he's coming. A lot like uh, Jonah, another Old Testament prophet that you may be familiar with. He, in chapter 3, verse 2 as he goes to Nineveh, he takes a couple days' journey, sits right into the middle of the city, and he's got a message from the Lord that God said, go to Nineveh and tell them. And he goes and he stands in the middle of Nineveh, and he says this, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Turns his mic off, walks off stage. That was his message. You know what, you know what the Ninevites did? They repented. They turned. They said, we don't want anything to do that. We don't want the justice of God. We want the mercy and the grace of God. And they turned, and guess what God did? Had mercy on them and did not overthrow them. Same short and sweet message we have here for John the Baptist. John's preparing people's minds and hearts for the coming of Jesus. And people say, they weren't saying this, but imagine this. They're asking, well, what do we need to do to prepare for Jesus' coming? Repent. Prepare your heart and prepare your mind for what is coming. Because the repentance that John was giving wasn't a repentance that led to salvation. It was a repentance that led to preparation. Christ came to preach the gospel that led to repentance and faith. John the Baptist was telling people, turn from your wicked and evil ways and turn to Christ because he's coming. Be ready. Be prepared. But you know what's interesting when it comes to John the Baptist's proclamation is John came to proclaim the first coming of Christ. The first, the arrival of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the beginning of his ministry. But did you know that the Bible speaks in much greater detail, in much greater content about the second coming of Jesus than the Bible does the first coming of Jesus? We have more in Scripture that tells us that he's coming back than we did about the fact that he was coming. That should say something about our responsibility. If John the Baptist's responsibility was to tell people that Christ is coming, our job because the scripture demands it and calls us to it. It's like it says over and over and over again that he's coming back. We should herald the return of Christ. I want you to write that down on point number one. Write that down on your notes. Herald the return of Jesus. 
Once you write that down, you could turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Starting in verse 7. When it comes to us heralding the return of Christ, this is what, this is what Jesus had to say to the disciples and then the, the messengers that were standing there as Christ was ascending into heaven. This is what it says. So the disciples came together when, when Christ had appeared to them. After a while, after he'd been resurrected, he came and appeared to them. And when the disciples had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They were waiting for him to come restore the kingdom of Israel because that was a promise that God had given to Israel, that God would restore them, that God would, would bring fullness back into the kingdom of Israel, that God would restore them physically. And we, we do believe that. We trust that. And there's coming a time in the eschatological calendar where that's going to happen. That's part of our future. But, but here's what Jesus had to say about the second coming. He said, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He said, I am coming back. But the point is not the fact that you know exactly when I'm coming back. The point is that you know I'm coming back. But he said, but here's what you should be focused on. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, and Samaria, to the end of the earth. He says, you're going to go make disciples. We talked about that last week, didn't we? And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men, these messengers, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus who was taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That is the promise after the first coming of Jesus that he's coming back in the same way that he left. And so if it was imperative and crucial for John the Baptist to proclaim that Christ is coming. How important is it for you and I as Christians to proclaim that Jesus is coming back? That's why we exist as messengers and heralds of an important decree of the king that he's coming. He says it in Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming soon and I bring my recompense with me. We must take seriously God's word that says he's coming back. As you see John the Baptist in his whole lifestyle and his demeanor, you see that successively heralding a message, because that's what we want to be, right? We just don't want to say something. We want it to work. We want it to be successful. And when it comes to John the Baptist's life, successfully heralding the return of Christ, as we look at his life, we look at John the Baptist, we look at what he did, you know, it involves us inwardly and outwardly associating ourselves with Christ and his message. I want you to see how John the Baptist did that. Look at verse 3. Because if we're going to herald the return of Jesus, we have to, in, in, inwardly and outwardly, both what we say, how we think, how we live, how we act, those things need to be associated so closely with Christ that when people see that in our life, it, the message matches the life. Look at verse 3. Matthew 3, verse 3. It says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Well, the, the prophecy was that there'd be a man in the wilderness. Who was John? A man of the wilderness. And then what else did it say? Verse 4, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. 
What does that have anything to do with associating with the Lord? Well, jot down 2 Kings. 2 Kings 1, 7 through 8. In your notes, just jot that down. You don't have to turn there. Just jot it down. John was wearing particular clothing to prove a point. There in 2 Kings 1 through 7, Isaiah was speaking against Ahaziah, the king of Israel, because that king had sent a messenger to a false god. And he fell through some lattice. Uh, King Ahaziah is sick, about to die in bed, and he's sending uh, a messenger to a false god to see if he will be, he will be healed, if that false god, false god would heal him. On the messenger's way to this false god, Isaiah kind of stops and says, what's going on here? Tells him the story, and Isaiah says, no, no, no. Go back, tell him he's not going to be healed. Tell him you're not going to follow false gods, and you're not going to be healed here with your disbelief. He didn't say anything about who he was, and listen what the messenger said. Ahaziah said, what kind of man was this in verse 7 that you came to meet and who told you these things? The messengers answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And Ahaziah said, that's Elijah the Tishbite. You see, they didn't have to say the name of Elijah for them to know, that's a prophet, that's Elijah. It's the same reason why John was wearing what he was wearing, because people understood that prophets of the old wore a certain garb. They wore hairy clothing. They wore a leather belt. And so John the Baptist wanted them to make to pick no bones about it. That when I am out here speaking, when I am proclaiming the word of the Lord, my whole life, including what I'm wearing, is associating with the word of the Lord. And they knew because these Jews knew the Old Testament. They knew what the prophets looked like. They knew what the prophets spoke. They knew what the prophets wore. And so when John the Baptist was out there proclaiming the word of the Lord, they said, he looks like a prophet. He talks like a prophet. He sure smells like a prophet. He must be a prophet because he associated himself with God and his word. This is important because prior to John's arrival, Israel had spent 400 years where God had not raised up a prophet to speak in Israel. And so it was very important that John associated himself with the prophets of old because the generations that were alive never had seen it. But when they saw him, they saw it and they knew they saw it because he associated himself so closely that his public preaching and his outward appearance endorsed the message that he was sharing with Israel. As we look at John's life, as we look at our life, this is why we need to make a point that in every way possible in our own life that we would do this, and that's point number two, that you would associate yourself with Jesus. Associate yourself with Jesus. You know, there is a, there is a real way in the Christian life that we have to make sure that everything that we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, everything we do, we do it for the glory of God, that everything that we do in our life, we can associate it with Christ. This is a real good question of what is God's will for me? We always ask, what does God want me to do? God wants you to be able to associate everything you're doing with him. So when I then begin asking myself questions of application, how do I live for the Lord? Well, ask yourself, does it matter then what I wear? It does in a real way. It does matter what I wear, doesn't it? Well, Because what I wear, can I associate my clothing with Christ? What about where I hang out, where I spend time? Does that matter? The places I choose to hang out, I always have to ask myself, would Jesus associate with this place? 
Can I associate with this place and still without causing a stumbling block in people's lives or causing confusion to other people, can I be in this situation and associate with these people or with this place or do this thing or do that thing? What about who you spend time with? Well, Pastor Hayden, Jesus spent time with sinners. Yes, he did. And if you will spend time with sinners and call them to repentance, go at it. Because that's what Jesus did. He didn't fraternize with the partiers and then go hang out with his buzzkilled disciples at night. No, he was, hanging, he was discipling the disciples and he was going and showing them this is what we do. We tell people that Christ has come, turn from your sins, place your trust in him. God's holy, perfect, loving, just. He does love you. But God's love does not outweigh his holiness. They're all equal. He's holy and perfect and just, which means there's a penalty for sin. Well, well, how does God love me? He loves you in this way, that he sent Jesus Christ to pay for your sins. That's a loving God. That's a perfect, holy, just, loving God. Okay, you're going to associate with people who do not know Christ? You better be telling them about Christ. And then they'll associate you with Christ. You see how that worked? What about the concerts and events you decide to go to? Think about that. When it comes to me associating myself in every way possible to Christ, what does that say about the events I choose to go to, the concerts I choose to go to? I have to ask myself, go to this concert, I bought tickets to this, would Jesus associate himself with this situation? Can I not be a stumbling block if I go to this situation? Or would I cause people to stumble? Would I cause people to question the gospel? You see, we're not talking about legalism here. We understand what legalism is, don't we? Legalism is somehow meriting your standing with God, your salvation. That's you saying, I can earn my salvation through doing or not doing a certain amount of things. We're not talking about that. You've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. But as we're living and we're ambassadors, we're associating ourselves as heralds of Christ, it does very much matter where we spend our time, how we spend our time, how we dress what we say, how we speak. These things are important because we are ambassadors, and that's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. You can flip there with me in your, in your Bible. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Look at our job here. It says about those who are in Christ, those who have been saved, those who have turned from their sins, placed their trust in Christ. Therefore, in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. That means that we are associated with Christ. That means that we are official representatives. That's what the word ambassador means. You and I are official representatives of Jesus. And it says, and here's what's happening. God is making his appeal through us. does matter then how we live, doesn't it? Because God is making his appeal through us. Where is God speaking? Well, he better be speaking through his ambassadors. His representatives better be speaking of him and living in a way that, clear, that clearly articulates his mission and his message to a dying world. It matters. And here's the message. We implore you, in verse 20, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our message. We implore people as ambassadors, as official representatives of Christ. We go and we say, I implore you, on behalf of God. It's not me speaking. This is on behalf of God as his messenger. Be reconciled to God through Christ. And it says in verse 21, how does that happen? It happens this way, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
We get to be that, those ambassadors that go to people and say, you can be saved. God loves to save sinners. And here's how it does. For our sake... He imputed our sin on Christ on the cross, and then he imputed his righteousness on you, that for your sake, he made Christ who knew no sin take on your sin, that you would take on his righteousness, and then you would be just and holy in the presence of God. When God looks at you, he sees the perfect perfect righteousness of Christ. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We don't have a righteousness of our own. We have a righteousness from Christ, an alien righteousness. So what are we going to do? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. So working together with God, then we appeal you to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. No fault may be found. No obstacles in the way. Our association with Christ as ambassadors is we are going to put no obstacles in anyone's way so that when we implore people to be reconciled to God through Christ... We live a life where where all that we put before people is the stumbling block of Christ. If they're going to stumble over anything, let it be Jesus. If they're going to stumble over any message, let it be the gospel. Let it not be what I wear. Let it not be how I live. Let it not be who I associate with. Let it be the gospel. Let them stumble over that because that is the only thing worth stumbling over. And it says, when is the favorable time? Today. That's what we, today is the day for salvation. We pray that today is the day of salvation for people in this room. We pray that every time we walk out of the house, as an ambassador, every day I want people to join heaven. I want people to be part of the citizenship of God, because that's what ambassadors do. They represent and bring people into citizenship, and the citizenship is of heaven. In, in a very real way, we talk about ambassadors and national ambassadors and Ambassadors are in other countries, but another thing that you may have more familiar with is brand ambassadors. We have a lot, a lot on our culture, on social media. Uh, you look and you see influencers. Well, all influencers are brand ambassadors. What they are doing is they are associating themselves with an organization, with a company, and they are representing that company's mission and vision and values. Simply said, they embody the identity of that company. So that when you see what they're doing, whether it's on social media or whether in real life, that when you see them, you see the company. When you see them, you see what that company stands for. And these people get paid lots of money to be associated with an organization in hopes that through that ambassador, that organization would receive more revenue and more prestige in our society. How much more so is it important for you and I to associate ourselves with Christ, that when people see us, they see the mission and the message of Jesus Christ. If people are willing to wrap their whole lives in a big target sign on their back, when you see them, you think Target. When you see them, you think of of Gucci. When you see them, you think of all these top brands and all these popular things. If people give their lives to that, how much more important is it for us to wrap ourselves up in the message of the gospel? How much more important it is for us to say, it's not about the money, it's about the message and the mission of Christ. Let it be that that I herald. Let it be that that I'm a brand ambassador. I'm an ambassador of Christ. It's not about a brand, it's about a mission, and it's about a message. And we tell people, if you're willing 
to sell everything that you do for a company, what about what it would be if God had saved you from your sin and you can trust in him and you'd have eternity to be his, to associate yourself with him. You see, the trade-off is very simple here. I'm not telling you to go out to all your brand ambassadors and say, you need to stop that and go be a brand ambassador of the gospel. I'm saying, no, no, that's what we need to be doing. We would tell other people that. That's what you have to be doing. That's what I have to be doing. What would our church look like if we were ambassadors, which we are, of the message of Christ? And it is a close association, right? That, that you think about the way that you, you live, the way what you wear, where you go. All these things are supposed to highlight something. Remember what John the Baptist said, I must become less, he must become greater. What our association with him does is it elevates the real thing here. It elevates God's mission to see lost people saved. When people notice that I'm not making it about how I look on stage and you're not making it about all of you, about you at work or all about you in your relationships, you're making it about Christ, it elevates the mission and the message of God to see lost people saved. So when people look at you, they respond, which is what we see. In, look at verses five and six, our final two verses. Five and six. As John the Baptist is preaching, it says in verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Can you imagine that? He's in the desert. And Jerusalem and all of Judea and all that region about were going out to him. If I were out in the Tucson desert and I put a pulpit right in the sand and I started preaching, would you be there? Would you? Would you invite everybody around Arizona to come out? Would they come out? Probably not, right? That's the miraculous nature of the fact that he's in the desert and he's preaching and everybody's coming to hear him because they said there's a prophet. This is someone associated with God and he has a message from the Lord because he did. He had a word from God and he was calling them to respond. And this is what happened. He was calling, repent, prepare for the Lord. And look at verse six. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins you see, although that baptism wasn't a sign of their salvation, remember, it was a sign of their preparation, it was still a command of God for them to follow through in obedience, an outward display of a commitment they made inside to say, I'm, I'm ready for Jesus. When he shows up and he preaches the gospel, I'm ready to respond. And so outwardly, they were baptized as an outward sign of the inward commitment they had made to be prepared for Jesus. And they said, repent. What does that word repent mean? We see it a lot in scripture, don't we? It's a, it's a word that we see all throughout the Bible. It comes from the Greek word, at least in the Greek, metanoia. And metanoia is a word that means a changing of the mind and the life. It means that I not only change the way I think, but I change the way I live. And that's what John the Baptist was calling these people to. Repent, turn around, change your mind, change your life. And this was startling to the Jews. Very startling to the Jews because the Jews thought they had access to God because of their ethnicity, because they were Jews. They were through the line of Abraham. And so they thought that they were born right with God just because of who was their great, 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 great grandfather. You know what John the Baptist had to say about that? Matthew 3, 9. This is what John the Baptist says. Don't you presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, 
in John the Baptist says, For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children of Abraham. He's like, no, don't think just because you are in the line of Abraham. Don't just think because you're Jewish. Does that mean that you don't need to repent, that you don't need to respond to God because God can raise up children from these stones? What a humbling remark. God doesn't need you. He can create children from that rock right there. You remember what he did at the beginning of time? When there was nothing, God created everything. How hard is it for him to create a couple of children out of rocks? Not very hard in the grand scheme of things, is it? And he's saying, no, 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 don't, don't presume to say that to yourself. But you need to repent. You need to prepare for Jesus. You need to get baptized in following with the repentance of your life. You know what's very interesting about this? Gentiles were baptized when they converted to Judaism because it was a, an outward commitment to the conversion of Judaism that they had committed to. And the reason they wanted to baptize is because Gentiles were evil, wicked, godless people. Gentiles were spoken of in the worst ways in Jewish cultures. But if one of them wanted to convert, go, convert, be baptized, clean yourself, and come over here. And the interesting thing is John the Baptist looks at these Jews and says, you know what you're going to do? You're right, you're going to get baptized. Because you're just as stinky and evil and corrupt as all of the Gentiles. And Christ has came for the Jews and he's come for the Gentiles and the response is all the same. Get ready. Repent. The message was the same to everybody. We're all wicked. We all need to turn. He says, get ready. But you know, to us, although the baptism was was different for, for them, it was a baptism, a preparation. We get baptized because we realize we too had a time in our life where we turn from our sin and place our trust into Christ. So we get baptized as an outward reality of the inward faith that we have when we turn from our sin and place our trust into Christ. And we have that responsibility to tell other people that it's about them turning from their way and turning to the way. That's, that's our responsibility as heralds of the gospel. Our job is to, to, to help people, invite people to come to Christ. And that's point number three on your outline. I want you to write it this way. You need to invite people to rightly respond to Jesus. Invite people to rightly respond to Jesus. This is the the command of Christ. You know, John the Baptist isn't the only one who told people to repent. As a matter of fact, after Jesus was baptized by John, which we'll talk about what that baptism signifies later on in the sermon series, after he was baptized and he began his earthly ministry, the first thing he said, the first words that come out of his mouth in Mark 1, verse 15, is he comes into his earthly ministry, in his job for the next three years, and the first thing's out of his mouth For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is what Jesus' message has been and always has been and always will be until he comes back. He's calling people to turn away from their way and turn to him for the forgiveness of sin. That for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's always been the gospel message. And the importance about being an ambassador and being a herald is that God is making his appeal through us. So it's a very fine thing to say, at least in our lives, as we look around, if you see people not coming to Christ, what you see is a lack of ambassadors, what you see is a lack of people allowing God to use them to call people to him. So that's why at Compass, we commit. It is in our DNA to make sure that we are proclaiming a biblical gospel, 
a gospel that includes a call, a caruso. It's not just information, it's a proclamation that calls people to turn from their sin and trust in Christ. And that's what we want to do at our church. We want our church to be that kind of place, a place where ambassadors are representing the mission and the identity of God. That when people look at us, we don't cause stumbling blocks. When people look at us, they don't, the only thing they can think about is Jesus and the message and the mission that he was here to proclaim and to fulfill. So as Christians, we say God has saved us and God has repurposed us. And so at Compass Bible Church, that's why we say every, every time we do a podcast, every time we do training, we tell people we exist for one purpose, to teach people, to reach people, and to train people. We're here to reach people for Christ. We're here to teach people to be like Christ, and we're here to train people to serve Christ. That's who we are. We don't want this church to be a stumbling block for any other way as long as we reach people and we're teaching people and we're training people. Let's take that mission up together as we leave here this morning. Pray with me. God, my great prayer, even as people came in here, maybe they looked at the text that we were going to preach and they said, what could this have to do with me? I just pray, God, that you, uh, in such a miraculous way, God, applied this to our life, showed us how our mission has not changed. As John the Baptist proclaimed the first advent, that we are proclaiming the second advent. As John the Baptist called people to respond, we're calling people to respond As he was an ambassador, we're ambassadors. As he associated with you, God, I pray that we would associate with you in every way, that we would not be a stumbling block in any way, but with great conviction, great compassion, and great desire that we would see so many people in the hill country saved by the grace of your son given through you, that as we read in scripture, for our sake, Christ became sin, who was perfect and knew no sin. So that in him, in those who've responded to that offer, might receive the righteousness of your son. So God, we are thankful for that. That is our mission and that is our banner that we leave here with this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.